this is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, and welcome back to the Rebel Author Podcast. Before we start the interview, I'm going to tell you about a couple of things I've been up to this week and I think you might be interested in. First of all, I've been binging my way through various resources on audio creation. Uh, Instead of listing them all out on this podcast, I thought I would throw them all together in a set of two blog posts. So the first one is more of a listicle. It will point you to various um, articles and audiobooks and paperbacks, etc, etc, which will help you in the various stages of audiobook podcasting and narration. The second blog post will be out on Monday the 28th of October 2019 if you're listening in the future Um, and in that one I will show you how to create a audio recording booth um, step by step and I have done this in a very small space. So if you don't have much space, don't worry. I can still show you how to do one. Um, So I will include all of the links to that in the show notes. Next up, I was so excited to see that Lindsay Baroka has come back to the podcasting world. I used to love listening to the science fiction and fantasy marketing podcast, but it stopped about six months ago, I think now. Well, anyway, I'm delighted to tell you that she's back with Joe Lalo and Andrea Pearson, and their new podcast is called Six Figure Authors. I will include a link to that in the show notes as well. So, Last before we start is the Listener Rebel of the Week. This week, it's Matthew Goodall. So Matthew says, Probably my only real rebellious thing was working out how to sneak the biscuits out of the biscuit tin as a kid. The first time, I was an extreme noob and just took a few. Mum knew from the gap in the biscuits left behind and she smacked me. I learnt my lesson. From then on, I very carefully removed the tin, took the lid off and memorised where the top biscuits were. Then I'd remove them, taking a couple from underneath and balancing uh, ones back on top. Uh, So it looked like nothing had happened. And then I returned the tin to the cupboard and voila, he got away with it scot-free. I will include a link to Matthew's uh, new website, author website, and his uh, Facebook in the show notes. So if you would like to be a listener rebel, then you can email me your rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rebelauthorpod. Okay, let's get on with the interview. Today, I'm with Christina Stanley. Christina is a best-selling author, story editor, and the CEO of Fictionary. Fictionary helps writers tell powerful stories with breakthrough online software that simplifies story editing. She's the author of the Stone Mountain series, mystery series, Look the Other Way, and the author's guide to selling books to non-bookstores. Welcome. 
Hi, Sasha. It's really great to be here. I thank you for having me. Um, you and I have talked a lot about editing and how to help writers edit books and stuff. So it's kind of fun now to actually put it into a podcast. I know. So so for context, for everybody listening, uh, Christina and I um, got hooked up by a, by a kind of mutual friend of ours. And we have uh, a great uh, shared interest in editing. We're both editors. And and we've been working on secret things in the background and we've never had a chance, although we've spoken kind of always about business and always about editing, uh, this is really a chance for us to geek out over the nitty gritty of editing. And you can hear it, you can hear the excitement in my voice. <laughs> but um, yeah, so welcome. Thank you so much for giving me uh, your time. I know how um, busy you are. But I would love it if you could tell everybody listening a little about your journey and, and your writing career and how you have ended up here. Sure, I would love to. Who doesn't like talking about the story, <laughs> about writing stories? Tell me your whole life story. Start with you were born. No. <laughs> I'm going to start with the interesting bit. So okay. I worked in a ski resort which was really great and I was the director of human resources and of the security team. So I saw every single thing that happened in the ski resort, whether it was staff or a guest, and every crazy thing came across my desk. So I did this for six years. And then at the end of the six years, my husband and I quit and we went sailing. And I had all these stories from living in the ski resort of things people actually do. And they're all running around in my head. And I also loved that job, best job of my life. And so it kind of stuck with me. And while we were away, I needed something to really engage my brain. And I, so I thought, naively, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> How hard can that be? <laughs> yeah, Which, we all start there. <laughs> anyway, so I did. And on, my, on that boat, um, I wrote um, three of my books. And I... Um, I wrote in the murder mystery genre because I love to read murder mysteries. That's that's the book when I go to, I just want something to read that I can totally escape from and sit down and do just for myself. It's that kind of book. So I thought, well, I should be writing that kind of book. And so it really just came from a desire to do something that challenged my brain and that was creative and that I was interested in, but no real specific eye-opening moment of why I wanted to become a writer uh, two questions the first one how long did you live on the boat and the second one I think is actually more of a point so I lots of we get told to uh write what we know and I think that's such a mistake of advice I think we should be writing what we love so I love young adult fantasy or young adult fiction generally and and I'm that's all I read. So why would I not read that? I'm not a young adult, so therefore, how can I know young adult things now? You know, I am in my thirties, <coughs> um, but you know, <laughs> I, I I that's what I love. So yeah, I I can totally see why you ended up writing that. Although I I did kind of chuckle to myself because um, I don't see mystery as escapism. I kind of see it as a puzzle. So you know, my 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 wife reads um, psychological thrillers and kind of crime books. And it's just the whole time I can kind of see her eyes glinting yeah. as she's trying to work out the puzzle. I mean, that is obviously a form of escapism, but right. I, I love them for the, for the, for the puzzle. Um, but yes, tell me about the boat. 
Okay, just before that, I want to comment on about writing what you know. And you're the first person I've talked to that I have a true belief in what you said. Write what you love. You have to spend so many hours with your story mm -hmm. again and again and again. And so it better be something you love and are passionate about. Because otherwise, why would you spend those hours? And the human brain can learn anything. Mm -hmm. Anybody can. You just need to put in the time and the effort and do your research and interview people or go experience something or whatever it is. But you can learn it. You don't have to know it. But if you love it, writing's a joy. If mm -hmm. you don't, I'm not sure writing's a joy as opposed to the desire to write something and create something, but not the actual joy of writing about it. Yeah, I, I, I just cannot agree with you more. Write what you know is one of those bullshit pieces of advice that, that kind of a myth, you know, a myth just builds up around it. Like, also, you must write every day or you are a heathen. Like, what? No, no, you do not. You have to have a habit, but that doesn't mean you have to write every day, everybody. You don't no. have to write no. every day. And if you have a job, you don't go to your job every day. Exactly. You go seven days a week and you don't. And there's laws around that because you can't be productive and healthy if you do that. Exactly. It's not possible. And in Canada, the, the employment standards laws are, are quite strong. And that's a big thing about it is people need to get away. And the same goes for writing. So I, I'm a believer in that too. Yes, you have to be diligent and persistent and work hard, but in a way that's healthy for you as a person and for your mind to make it creative. Absolutely. And they're changing. I, I read an article the other day that said um, they're changing the working time directive or something. I think that's what it's called in Sweden so that they only work four days a week, which yeah. I just think is fantastic. I mean, yes. no, don't be self-employed because then you work seven days a week. Move to Sweden. Be employed. That's really good. Yeah. Um, the boat, the boat. Tell me about the boat. I'll just do that very quickly. Yeah. I have a little story later I want to relate to writing, but I've spent nine years living on a sailboat, went out once for four and another for five. So um, it, it's obviously sailing is a passion of mine. <laughs> and, and we've gone twice because after being on a boat for a few years, you feel a great desire to be on land and connected <laughs> and part of, you know, the world. So you kind of, we've gone in and out. When you go, it's terribly exciting. And after a few years goes by, you think, okay, I'm not, I'm kind of tired of making water every day. So yeah, yeah. let's go back and give a tap. I, I just think it's so cool though. I like, you know, that must just feed your mind though with such mm -hmm. inspiration and also no distractions that I'm surrounded by distractions. Um, so I wanted to ask you about Fictionary because mm -hmm. You are the CEO, founder, creator, uh, mega mastermind of Fictionary. So for those listeners who haven't heard of Fictionary, please do tell us a little bit about Fictionary, where it came from, what it's what it can do for for writers. OK, so it really is, um, you know, it's something that we built for writers based on on my writing career. So. When I had written the three books in the Stone Mountain series, I had an editor and she, not an editor, sorry, I had an agent and my agent suggested that I take the third book and make it the first book. Ooh. And she was right, but imagine the amount of work it takes to do that. So I, I built this spreadsheet that literally had my, you know, hundred books of writing advice that I'd read in it, along with 86 columns of every piece of, um, 
key story element I wanted to analyze against every scene and make sure I was consistent and was doing the right things. And I did that for every single scene in all three books. And I had this huge, massive network of spreadsheets and stuff. So my husband one day looks over my shoulder and he's like, what are you doing? Go on, writing. Like, mm, what? <laughs> I'm like, oh, because blah, blah, blah. So he went, oh, there's an app for that. I'll find you one. And he came back and went, guess what? There's not. There's nothing that focuses on editing a story from the big picture um, way of character plot and setting. It's all about grammar and punctuation. There's nothing. And so his idea was, well, let's build it. Let's take what you did because you built it and let's put it into um, a piece of software that other writers can use. And so that was the start of it. Um, you know, and then of course we went away and, and kind of spent two years just really designing it to figure out what would work. And we interviewed hundreds of writers of how do you write? How do you edit? What are your problems? What would you like? And on and on and on it went until we came out with a prototype in January of 2018. And then we let it sit for six months and just talked to writers who were using it and got a ton of feedback on, on what they liked and didn't like and what they really, really need. And then we spent another long time <laughs> um, adding those features into where we are today. And then from there, the other thing that happened to us is we had a whole bunch of editors, editors <laughs> um, like you, who said to us, you know, it's great for writers. Can't you build something for editors? And we thought, okay, sure we could. So then the whole process started over again with, well, let's interview editors and you figure out what they're doing um, in their day-to-day -day editing life to help writers and how could we put that into a piece of software. So we've ended up with Storyteller, which is for writers, and Story Coach, which is for editors. And the goal of Storyteller is to help a writer do a big picture story edit, and we call it a story edit instead of structural, developmental, substantive. One, because nobody knows what those terms mean, and they all mean something different depending on who you talk to. And we think story edit is really clear. You're editing your story, not the words. Um, so we went with that term to make it friendly so it's accessible to writers and they can understand what they're trying to accomplish in doing a story edit. And on the story coach side, what the goal is, is to help editors be the best in the world editors. So they don't miss things. They don't um, have their own areas that they tend to focus on that you get, you know, everybody gets in patterns and that's what they see and they don't see everything else. And so the goal with story coach is to help the editor really do a comprehensive edit, but not take more time to do it because obviously they have to run a business, they have to live off that business and it's hard. So the goal is to give the editors a tool to be better at their job in a really consistent, comprehensive way. And so we kind of, you know, we branched a little bit, but we really discovered that writers and editors work together and they need mm -hmm. to help each other mm -hmm. so that then they end up with that powerful story that we all talk about and want. Amazing. And and so for let's focus on the writer side for now yep that's great when is the best time for a writer to use this software so that ends up being a big question because we <laughs> thought it was 
um, after they finished a first draft or almost a first draft so that they import their manuscript and Fictionary scans it and it draws the story arc and it draws out their word count per scene so they can look at pacing and it links all their characters to each scene so they can see who is where and when you want to say something. I do because um, one of the things that I really love about Fictionary is that it's all very, very visual. So, the you know, yeah. when, you know, when Christina is saying it shows you, it really shows you, you know, in pictures. It's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's very visual. And it's, it's a, and once you've written a draft, it's really, really hard. And the advice that drives me crazy is put it in a drawer for two weeks or a month or whatever, and then come back and reread it and edit it. That never worked for me. But what happens when writers import their manuscript, they see it in a completely different way. So it triggers their imagination. And then they get ideas and they can actually finish their story. Um, it gives them a way to really look at different aspects between character plot and setting and go, oh, I haven't even thought about that. I need to go back to every scene and look at how do I enter a scene and how do I get out of a scene? And by being structured, the writer can do it. And the comment we often get back was, holy cow, I was stuck on this. I couldn't look at it anymore. And now I have all these ideas and I'm going to finish it. And I'm really excited and yay. And so, of course, I love hearing that because that's the goal. So um, it, 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 it takes away that thing of how do you actually see your own work because Fictionary shows it to you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and I just think that's magical because that is the problem, it, you know, we get so close to our manuscripts we live and breathe and sweat and pour our blood into them and you know there's no no possible way you can see the wood for the trees when you've been on a manuscript for for so long you know and it's kind of like a a a best critique partner buddy beta reader Mm -hmm. you know rolled into a piece of technological awesomeness but okay let's talk about editing for for a minute sure what what are the most common mistakes and perhaps that you see either through your own editing uh, with your clients or through the things that have gone through Fictionary, through your testing um, mm-hmm. and through your software? So it, it's, it's funny that you ask that question because I've done about, I've collected data on that for two years on just to answer that. And I have 10 things. And I'll send you a link to a blog I wrote about it if anyone's interested in really hearing the detail behind it. But one of the, I'll go down in the order that they tend to happen. And one is um, the word count doesn't follow genre requirements. And so, yeah, it's surprising, but many authors don't think about that when they start writing their story. And so they write a young adult book that's 153,000 words. So that's three books and you have a series and you don't even know it, right? Like how glorious is that to find out when you go, huh, look at that. So, (laughs) ka-ching! Right, so quite often a writer doesn't understand the commercial aspect, not that you should write your book too commercial, but if you're writing genre fiction and you wanna sell it to young young adults or a mystery novel you wanna sell, it should be around 80,000 words long. These are things you should know as a writer. And the other thing about word count is they don't get pacing and how to apply word count per scene to control pacing of their story. So so let me just come back on the, the a couple of points there. For anyone panicking and going, oh shit, you know, how do I work out, you know, what, what the genre counts are? A, 
Google it. B, if that doesn't come up with an answer, because I'm sure people aren't posting their book lengths, go into a bookstore and have a look in your genre area and look at how many pages on average your book has. Each page on a book has roughly 250 uh, words. So you can work it out. Just just go to a bookstore. Pacing. Tell, tell me about pacing. Sorry. So pacing is an interesting one because um, if you're trying to speed up to something and your scenes are really, really long, that's tiresome for the reader. And no matter what you put in there, they're going to think it's slowed down. And so an easy technique is to break your scenes up. So you you start with your bigger scene, you go smaller and smaller, and the book just seems to get faster and faster. If you're trying to slow it down because you're having an emotional reaction to some event for the character, you can write a longer scene. But you need to do that all in the context of the story arc. Because if your um, inciting incident, your plot points, your climax are too short, your reader's going to feel ripped off. Mm. That you can't have a super short climax scene that doesn't feel satisfying. And if you have a super long scene, that's not a main point of the story, the balance is off. And you can see that when you see your word count per scene graph in Fictionary, you go, oh, look, most of my scenes are around 1,000 to 2,000 words, and I have this one big one at 5,000. It's not a key scene. So what's in that scene? And should I just cut it? Should I cut pieces of it? Should I break it into a scene? But it gives your mind a trigger of, oh, go look at that. And then you can you can rewrite in your own way to make the story better. Yeah, and I think one of the magical things about pacing is that you have the power as the author to decide where you, you know, just because story structure, you know, commands that you have certain scenes of certain lengths in certain places doesn't mean that you have to do that. You can choose, like you were saying, Mm -hmm. if you want to have an emotional scene because you're inserting a subplot or you're adding, uh, you know, an emotional reaction to something, you can do that. That's okay. Um, But you can play with structure and pacing and, and, you know, the longer something is, the more you draw your reader's attention to that particular mm-hmm. scene. And mm-hmm. and that effect also can go down into the paragraph and into the sentence level and into the metaphors and juxtaposition. You know, the, the more you, <clears throat> excuse me, create detail and, and length, you know, the more your reader's attention is focused on that. Right. Um, sorry, geeking out about uh, uh, craft now. I'm sorry. It's, it's so good, but... You know, and the thing is, that's the whole thing about fictionary is there's a form around telling a powerful story, but it's not a formula, right? It's to mm-hmm. trigger the writer's mind to think about things and then understand why they're making a decision. And there's you, there's lots of examples of books that don't follow the story arc and, and have been hugely successful and people love them. But that writer knew how to do that. Yeah. And they made a decision of of why to do that and the Harry Potter series is an excellent example because the first book um, the climax happens earlier in the book than is normally recommended for a book but when you look at the story arc across the structure of her series it happens at exactly the right time to give enough uh, time at the end of the book to lead into the next story so she clearly knew what she was doing there we all know how successful she was <laughs> and it's it's a great example of someone who did not follow the exact story arc in, in a book but it's it's just works so we have genre uh length and and pace 
Right. So that's all word count. That's one thing. The number two, we're only on number two. <laughs> I'll try and speed this up. Sorry. So, okay, and, and I will give you a link because the, the blog explains all of this in detail and yeah. links to more detail. If there's a particular subject somebody wants to read up on, the information is there. Um, so the next one is the point of view is um, confusing or inconsistent or unbalanced. Um, and those are three areas of point of view. When a writer chooses a point of view, they're, they are making a promise to reader that's whose eyes they're gonna see the story from. And if the writer can't, or the reader can't figure that out, it's confusing, and then what happens is the reader doesn't connect to the character, mm -hmm. and so then they're not motivated to read about the character, and then down goes the book, right? Um, inconsistency, I'll try and just say this really short. So inconsistency is if um, you don't change point of view regularly, so say you have one person's point of view and then all of a sudden you jar into another for no particular reason, that's inconsistent. If you write in multiple points of view, if there's a, an unbalance there in that if it's too long between your protagonist's point of view or a different character's point of view and their next point of view, the reader's forgotten who they are and why do they have a point of view. And again, it throws the reader off and they lose interest. So that's number two. Okay. Number three is the point of view goal is not clear. And the reason this is super, super important, if your character doesn't have a goal and the reader doesn't get what it is, what's the character doing? It's boring and it's harsh. I know that's harsh to say it that way, but it's boring. Readers want to root for a character and they might want them to fail or they might want them to succeed. You don't know, but they want to root for them. And if they can't figure out what they're rooting for, boring, 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 yeah. boring. So it's really important. Every scene, there's a goal. And it could even be a desperate need for sleep, but can't get it because some emergency thing is happening. It doesn't have to be an earth shattering goal. It has to be something the character really wants mm -hmm. for some, for whatever reason in the book. That's number three. Um, then following right behind that, which is usually a lead in, if there's no clear goal is what's the purpose of the scene. So why is it even in the book? And we all get carried away as writers. You get writing, you write, there's an awesome scene that you loved and, and then you read it later and you think, I have no idea what it has to do with the plot. So what the <laughs> heck, why, 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 why did I put that in there? But it's hard to see yourself. But if you ask yourself a question for every single scene, what is the purpose of this scene? And if you can't figure it out, go back and look at is the goal clear? Because quite often if the goal is not clear, the purpose isn't clear. And the two kind of roll around each other. And if the scene doesn't have a purpose, put one in, cut it, or take the bits out of it that you need for your story and throw in a different scene that does have a purpose. Yeah. Okay, sounds like one, two, three, four. Um, lack of scene anchoring. So this one is an interesting thing in that when a reader starts a scene, they need to know who's got the point of view, they need to know where they are and they need to know what the timing is. Mm -hmm. And if one of those isn't clear, it's really, it's a big risk because if the reader's thinking, well, wait, when did this happen? Was this two hours or yesterday or, you know, in the future? Or they, if they don't know when they start thinking about that, they're out of your story. And so very quickly, you want to anchor your readers in those three things. Yeah, that's one of the things that actually I see quite a lot um, with with uh, newer writers, yeah. because I think 
I think the reason it happens is because the story is so embedded in a writer's mind that they you know accidentally for whatever reason take take for granted that the reader also knows exactly you know where mm-hmm. things where the characters are in yeah. in the writer's head just on the last one um whilst you absolutely must cut those scenes from your novel don't delete them because they yes, make yes, for yes. fantastic giveaways or freebies or extra insights uh you know, for your mailing list or for the back of the book or for giveaways or whatever yeah so just a little tip there well, and also if you write a series or a prequel or something you might use that scene yeah or a completely different book you might be able to take that scene so absolutely i forgot to say that is don't ever delete it <laughs> name it something so you remember what it is yeah but you want it yeah yeah absolutely um so the next one is um entry and exit hooks for a scene so we've all heard the advice your first line has to hook the reader you've got to get them right there yes you do and the first line of every scene has to hook the reader because you think of a person sitting in bed at night and they're tired and they flip to the next scene to see, do I want to read this or not? Mm-hmm. And the opening's awesome. You're like, oh, now I have to read this. Yeah. <laughs> really should go to bed. Really, really, really. But I'm going to read this scene because it's got something right at the beginning. They put your book down and a week goes by, they might never come back to it. So not that everybody's going to read your book in one setting, but you want them even if they put it down, you want them to go, okay, I got to come back to that book because the beginning of that scene, I need to know. And the same when you leave, leave or end a scene, you want the reader leaving with, oh, I just got to see what's in the next scene mm-hmm. and pull them through. And so you need to be careful that you don't use the same, like don't use a cliffhanger every scene because it's boring. You mm-hmm. can't do that, but you can, you know, give partial secrets away or, um, some big revelation or there's some big question that comes up there's many ways to do it but you need to leave the reader at the beginning and the end going oh i just have to check mm. one of the one of the things that i have seen on occasion is that writers think they're creating a cliffhanger but they're actually telling the reader what happens next so you know uh but never knew such and such was mm-hmm. coming yeah. no actually you, you need to end the chapter the very sentence before uh you know so you you absolutely must not tell the reader what is coming the point is is to leave the question in their mind uh that they that they must have answered because that's what's what keeps them up until three o'clock in the morning you know they love to hate that feeling you know of having to read on (laughs) yep that is so true um and then the next one is not enough tension in every scene And that links back to the purpose of the scene. If there isn't tension, and it doesn't have to be huge drama tension, it doesn't have to be conflict and a a fight, but there needs to be something that the reader's a little bit on edge about and thinking about and worried about. And again, if your scene lacks tension, you need to add it in, take some bits out, or cut it all together with the same caveat of don't throw it away. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then backstory, having too much backstory too early. So, you know, there I like to link that to. So you go to a party and you meet somebody new and they go, hey, I was born in and then I and then I and they tell you or they tell you a whole story of their day about picking up dry cleaning or something. And you're thinking, what? I don't I don't want to know that. But if you 
meet them at a party and they go, oh man, I totaled my car today. They're starting in media res with, you go, oh really, what happened? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I sold my first book today or something that's really relevant and exciting that you want to talk to them about. And a book is the same way that the reader does not need to know everything about a character and they certainly don't need to know all of the important bits early on. It's better if there's a bit of mystery in there that, you know, somebody is an orphan and then there's a little hint about the way the parents died, but not how they died or when they died or anything, just a hint. So then you, you, you worry about the character of she's 12 years old and doesn't have parents, and but you have no idea what happened. No backstory there. Just enough to entice the reader to be curious. Yeah, and I think the really... The thing here, for me personally, is that I love to know a lot of backstory about my characters that my readers don't need to know. And that's okay, because that's that's me building the characters in the background. The thing that I take from backstory is that it gives me their reason why they behave the way they behave. That's and right. that's the important bit to put into my stories. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the trick, right? Right, exactly what you said there. When you're looking at every piece of backstory in the book, you want to look at is it is it helping the story move forward? Is it providing motivation? Mm-hmm. Does it explain some weird behavior they had? Mm-hmm. Um, and if it doesn't do anything for the story, they don't need to know the you know a boy grew up with a cat. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. they really don't. It's got if it's nothing, even though it's a nice little tidbit about someone who make, it makes them feel like a nice person and things. Um, backstory is one of those things that I'm pretty harsh at cutting when I'm editing. <laughs> I don't need to know it. I don't need to know it. I, I can read this. If you if you cross all this out, I'm loving the story. Yeah. <laughs> Brutal. I know. Yeah. But, no, fair. I know. but fair. But fair. You know, it, if we as editors don't share our thoughts with the writer, what's the point of having an editor? Yeah, totally. You know, you also have to show what's great about the book. Mm-hmm. and what's working for the writer and where their strengths are, of course, so they know what, what they are good at, because that's hard to see, too, as a writer. But you can't shy away from giving, you know, direct and honest feedback. So, And then the last thing I see, which is the hardest one, is the story arc. Um, mm-hmm. And writers not understanding what the key points are, and to have the key points, not even the placement of the key points, but but to have an inciting incident, something that shakes up the protagonist's world and changes things. You know, a reader needs that. Every story has one. You can, you know, once you start looking at stories and analyzing them, there is something that starts the story and drives it forward. So that's the last one, and it's hard because it takes a long time, and that's why we drew that in Fictionary, that we, we draw here's what's recommended and here's what you're actually doing and so then the reader can think about well where is my inciting incident do i have one and well, i have it here but it's way too late or you know it's too short or it's not quite working whatever but it gives them a chance to actually analyze it and have a look yeah i think lots of authors get intimidated by the 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 story arc or the concept of the story arc right. and actually most writers innately 
feel their way through a story arc and some you know know, where there are mistakes it is literally about structuring the story all of the points generally are there and obviously some people not but you know generally speaking because we have been told stories since we were children you know one of the first things children understand when it comes to stories is they have a beginning a middle and an end my five-year-old knows that he knows story arc because he knows the stories have a beginning a middle and an end and and obviously it gets more and more complicated as we as we create these stories but a story arc is a map that's all it shows you the beginning the end and how you get to the end of the story that's right that's right yeah so there's my top 10 amazing i i literally you know i i'm gonna have to go back and listen to this and write loads of notes because there were so many good points in here um what's your pet hate go on spill the goss what you know every editor i know has a thing that they that they hate the most mine hands up mine's repetition i really hate repetition in a novel uh but what's yours well here's the thing when i'm editing i don't have a pet hate what I see that I look at are the writer's pet issues. <laughs> it's different, right? It's a different thing of what, so one writer might just have a head hopping problem, but uh-huh. everything else is great, right? So I tend to focus that on um, when I'm editing, but as a reader, my pet hate is um, when I can clearly see that the writer has not put the work in to properly edit their book. And that you think there's actually a good story in here, mm. but nobody took the time to really figure out the tightness of that story and do it properly. And so that drives me crazy as a reader, and I don't really want to invest my time. Um, and sometimes it's such a good story. I feel like writing the author saying, okay, if you did the following things, this would be a great story. But, you know, I, I would never do that because no one's asked. So you know, I'm not going to go, hey, this is my opinion on your book. But I, I don't like reading a book that I don't feel the author has put enough hard work into it. And that is a great segue into my next question. Okay, what's the next one? <laughs> what? So talk to, actually, talk to new and seasoned writers. What do you think are the one or two things that they can do to you know, during their self-edit to really improve their manuscript? And obviously each yeah. writer is different, but, but pluck two from the air for me. Okay, so one is... Um, you need to have a structure of doing it and whether it's on a whiteboard whether it's using my lovely product dictionary (laughs) whether it's in spreadsheets like i did it with my first books you need an organized way to review your manuscript because just keep just rereading it is going to waste so much time right and and i so i think every writer needs whatever works for them some comprehensive and structured objective way of of reviewing their own work, which leads into the other important thing of, I'd like to tell writers, when you're working with an editor, you need to remember you're the artist. Mm. The editor is there to help you, but it's your voice, it's your story, and you get to decide, unless of course you're working for a publisher and they dictate it, but in today's world, most authors get to decide what they're putting in, and so, Two things on that. You need to know your stuff when you're working with an editor. So you need to basically understand what a story edit is, copy editing, proofreading, depending on the level you're working with. Because if you have a bad editor and you don't know that, 
you don't know what advice to take from them. And it's hard to know if you have a good or bad editor. You'd think the person's an expert, but you know, maybe, maybe their dog died that week and they weren't paying attention to your book or you just don't know. And so as a writer, I think it's the writer's responsibility to truly understand the craft behind writing and editing. And then when you use an editor, you get the most out of them because what you deliver to them is a better story if you understand that. And then they're working on high level issues and you're not paying them to work on things you could have learned them, themselves. But um, it really ensures that when your book goes out, it's going to be a better book. Those are my two no, and you are on fire because that has segued into my next question. Okay. <laughs> um, qu- any quick tips or tricks for a writer to lower their editing costs? Yes. Okay. One, don't ever pay for a copy editor if you haven't done a structural edit first. So if you haven't done your story edit, either yourself or, or paid an editor to do it, you're wasting your money. Because if you come back later and um, do a story edit, your whole story changes. You could cut, cut scenes, write whole new scenes, reorder scenes, and then your copy edit has been a complete waste of money. So don't, don't, don't do a copy edit too soon. And it's interesting because I have lots of writers ask me this, I just want a copy edit. And you think, no, you don't. <laughs> You really don't, you know, or can you, can you story edit and copy edit at the same time? No. Mm -mm. And any editor who said that is doing you a disservice because you're going to go away and rewrite a whole bunch of sections. And so you've just wasted all that time and money on something you're going to redo. So that's my biggest, please don't do that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that, uh, for anyone who hasn't yet paid for an edit, please understand that a developmental edit is far more expensive than your line edits or your proofreads. And the reason for that is because the quantity of feedback that you will get for a story structural developmental edit is enormous. And yes, that is daunting and scary, but do you want the best story or not? Whereas somebody who's doing kind of line edits, they are proofing, fact checking and making Mm -hmm. sure your commas and your apostrophes are in the right place. It is very different. Uh, Make sure you check which one you are really after. Okay, book recommendations. Okay, so I'll just, I'm going to give you the one, my favorite that I'm reading right now, (laughs) which is called The Artful Edit, um, and with the subheading uh, on the practice of editing yourself. And it's written by Susan Bell. It came out in around 2007, maybe, but it's an excellent, excellent book on how to self-edit and really pick up some knowledge behind the craft of self-editing so that you can pull out the best creative work from that. So I just, I'm reading it right now and it's a fabulous book on really in an interesting and fun way explaining what it means to be a self-editor. Amazing. And I will make sure that links to that book are in the show notes. Excellent. Now, this podcast is called the Rebel Author Podcast. So, tell me about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. Okay, that's a hard question, but (laughs) I'm going to link that back to sailing. 
So my husband and I were invited to go on a two-week sailing trip to Thailand with some friends who chartered some sailing boat. I thought, okay, sure, whatever, that sounds nice. So we went, and when we were there, we spotted a boat uh, from California. And we're in Thailand, right? You think, what the heck? What are those people doing here? And my husband says, well, they're cruisers. I'm like, well, what's a cruiser? Well, it's people who live on a sailboat and sail around the world. I thought, well, I want to do that. How come we're not doing that? We should do that. So we were working as expats in Germany in very lucrative jobs, and we quit. And our friends thought we were nuts. Like, what the heck are you doing? And um, we just decided, you know what, we're going to go and do this. So we figured it out. We saved every penny we had and um, flew back to Canada and bought a boat and, and left. And, you know, the thing for me, part of the reason we did it, I have this fear of missing out. <laughs> and, and, and that comes from I don't want to live my life and at the end look back and go, huh, that was boring. That, that frightens me more than anything else is that, I mean, obviously not if you're like in a life and death situation, but, you know, in general life thought um, that, you know, we were considered so crazy that a year after we came back for a visit and someone forwarded me an email from some, some, from some friends and the email was, well, I saw the Stanleys and they're both alive and well. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Of course we're alive and well. And the gossip amongst our friends was, well, if they quit those jobs to go sailing, one of them must be dying because <laughs> why else would you do that? You think, Whoa, wait a minute. There's nothing wrong with that. Except that maybe that little inner rebel is coming out that we wanted to do something really different and exciting. And yeah, it was kind of freaky and scary and you know especially the first year where you know nothing about anything sailing even though you think you do but really you don't I which thought. is like writing a book in that if you knew what you knew now would you go back and write a book yes. maybe not. And yes. if we knew what we knew at the end of at the end of that first year would we have started mm, I'm not sure <laughs> yeah it's like definitely like having kids as well no one tells you the real oh truth <laughs> oh, it's really hard yeah um I love it I love that your friends thought that as well I think that's absolutely fucking hilarious <laughs> really nice friends but no one asked us yeah nobody asked us like are you okay yeah yeah all too terrified of the answer yeah <laughs> So where where did you did you literally circumnavigate the globe? Or? No, we um, bought a boat in Toronto, Canada, and we sailed it down the east coast of Florida all the way to Aruba and uh -huh. back. And that took us four years because we're really slow. Amazing. <laughs> and what we found was as you go, you find places and you think, oh, we'll just stay for six months. Yeah. And, you know, and Aruba we stayed for a year. We didn't lift wow. our anchor. We stayed wow. for a year. It's like that house. It was really funny. I think it was so great. Then we just stayed. And then after a year, we thought, oh, well, our visa's up. I guess we should go. <laughs> and just out of sheer curiosity, did you work on the boat as well? Like, did you have to keep jobs whilst you were? No. And what we did, so, you know, from the moment that we were in Thailand to um, the day we bought our boat was about three years. Okay. And during that three years, we didn't spend money. We saved every penny. So no new furniture, very few new clothes, oh, no okay. new toys, no, like... Our motto was, if it's not going on the boat, we're not buying it. And so we went on this super serious focus of we want that thing over there and to get it. 
And then, you know, four years goes by and you think, okay, so we got to go back and go to work. And that's when I went to work at the ski resort. Yeah. But it is amazing what you can achieve, like financially, you know, and actually there's going to be a podcast. Yeah, exactly. And and in a couple of weeks, well, actually, I don't know the scheduling, but there is a podcast booked in talking about money matters for writers who actually want to quit their jobs and do this because it is more than achievable. But that is a podcast for another day. Um, So tell listeners where they can find out more about you, your books and Fictionary. Sure. Okay. So um, my books are a little interesting, so I'll get that into a second. So Fictionary is just fictionary.co and our whole website is there. And I do want to say within the next month, we're going to have a brand new website and app look. So we're just about to launch in a whole modern, beautiful look. So I think when this goes live, that will also be live. So Oh, good. That's exciting. That's perfect. So yeah, so it's fictionary.co and under journal, you can find many many blogs on how to edit your own books and you can read your heart's content for my books it's christinastanley.com um and i was very lucky i have a canadian publisher and um after we built fictionary i wanted to take my books down and run them through fictionary and so i got my rights back and not for i have a german publisher and so that one's staying in german because you know it's in german so off it goes but um my canadian publisher was very gracious and allowed that and so i've i've rewritten descent based on what i know today and republished it in july and blaze should come out in another couple of months and then i'll follow it with avalanche and look the other way um and i you know i really wanted to you know as they say put my money where my mouth is and go okay what can I do with this story, knowing what I know now, and with my own tool, rewrite it and and do it myself. And so that's what I've done. And so I, I have to say I'm pretty pleased with Descent and how it turned out. Um, and Blaze is, is next up. And I will also make sure that there are links to those in the show notes as well. Excellent. So thank you very much. Christina and thank you to everybody listening. If you would like to support the show and get early access to the episodes, you can support us on uh, www.patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. That's Sasha with a C, S A C H A. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Christina Stanley, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. In the next episode, I'll be talking to Holly Line all about world building. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.